0: Lord, we call ourselves your followers, your people, and yet we are following one whom we do not see. Help us to understand what that relationship is all about for us now today. And Lord, I pray that we grow in that. In fact, I pray, Lord, that we would not be content to not grow in that. That we wouldn't stay at the level that we've been at, but we would press further in and understand you better and please you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I forgot almost that we are being joined by radio stations around America. About 300 are listening in right now. And uh, would you give them a warm welcome this evening? Now, if you're listening to this live, could you please applaud and then we'll listen really carefully? Oh, it doesn't work that way, does it? It's only one way. All right, never mind. The earliest followers of Jesus Christ were never called Christians. And I say the earliest. Eventually they were, and that's found in the book of Acts, chapter 11. But. The earliest followers in the book of Acts were given different names. Brethren was one name. Those who believe is another name, or believers as we would call them today. Another name is followers of the way. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Followers of the way. The term Christian was coined by unbelievers, Gentiles. As I said, Acts chapter 11. And in the first century, toward the end of it, Tacitus said that it is the vulgar that called them by the name Christian. But the earliest title for followers of Christ wasn't Christian, wasn't brethren, but the very earliest was the term disciple. Disciple. A disciple, the word means a pupil, an observer, a learner somebody who makes astute observations about one's teaching and one's lifestyle and then seeks to emulate them. That's the meaning of a disciple. Uh, I'm not sure that we necessarily understand the concept of discipleship. And that's why we read the Bible every week to reinforce what the meaning of following Christ is. I heard about two city slickers from New York City. They'd been in the city all their life, they didn't know the country, they'd never really been to it, and they just decided, you know what, we've had enough of the city, we need to get back to the country, and we need to live like our ancestors lived, off the land. So they decided to buy a ranch down in Texas. They settled the ranch... And they decided the first thing they needed was a mule. After all, on television, they all have donkeys. You know that? Horses and livestock. we got to get a mule. So they went to a neighboring ranch, and they asked, Hey, you got a mule we can buy? And the guy from Texas said, I reckon I don't. Well, they were disappointed, and they decided to visit with this rancher, their neighbor, a while. And they noticed that stacked up against the barn were a whole bunch of honeydew melons. And these city slickers said what are those things over there? And then, you know, now the rancher thinks these guys are hopeless city slickers. They don't even know what those are. So he decided, I'm going to have a little fun with them. He said, boys, them are mule eggs. (laughs) That's right. You buy one of those, take it home, it's going to hatch, and you're going to have a mule. They got all excited. So they bought one. They put it in the back of their pickup truck. Yes, they had a pickup. And they're driving down the bumpy dirt road back to their ranch, went over too big of a bump, and the honeydew melon fell out and burst open. Well, they noticed it in the rearview mirror. They slowed down. They pulled the truck back around to get it. In the meantime, one of those big old Texas jackrabbits, you know, the big, big kind with the saddle on it almost, had to come over and and notice the honeydew melon open, and he's sitting there eating it. So these two New Yorkers come, and they look at that creature, and they go... Well, look at that. We got a mule. It hatched. <laughs> Let's get it. So they chased it, and of course, the jackrabbit feeling threatened, hops all over the place. You can't catch those things, but they gave it their hardest try. It eluded them. They were absolutely exhausted and fell on the ground, and one of them got up on his arm and says, "Well, we lost our mule." And the other New Yorker gets up and goes, yeah, but you know, I'm not sure I wanted to plow that fast anyway. <laughs> they just didn't get the concept, did they? Hopeless city slickers. Discipleship has become a buzzword in the last 20, 25 years in evangelical churches. But I feel feel that we're a little bit naive as to how that plays out in our personal lives. And even as the city slickers didn't quite understand the Texas ranch, I'm not sure that we, in the year 2001 A.D., quite understand discipleship. Example. Do you remember when Jesus first called the two brothers by the Sea of Galilee? Simon and Andrew. They were casting nets out. And Jesus walked up to them and said, follow me. What was their response? Immediately they laid down their nets and they followed Jesus. Their response was total. Their response was immediate. Absolute commitment to him. And they went with him. A little while later, Jesus spotted two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And he said, follow me. And their response likewise was immediate. They left their boats. They left their family. And they followed Jesus totally. And what an adventure they would be in for. The ride of their life. Absolutely everything would change. This was a new way of life, wasn't it? Completely different from what they were used to. They were disciples now of Jesus Christ. This is, in John 13, as we have stated before, the last night of intimacy that Jesus spends with His disciples before His death. It is the night that changes everything for these men. They really don't quite understand what is about to happen. And so in these final moments, Jesus instructs them. There are three new experiences these men were to have. Three new experiences. Three experiences that disciples ought to have. And we're going to go through it. I draw your attention to verse 31. Let's read it together and then we'll go back and look at these points one by one. So when they had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Go back to verse 31. Verse 31 and 32 bring up a new way of looking at life. I call it a new perspective. Notice that Jesus said, after Judas has left now, he's gone. He's the false disciple. He's got the 11 true disciples left with him. And teaching them about discipleship, he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. Notice that there is a change of theme from betrayal, that's what we looked at last time, to glory. Now what does Jesus mean by this? Glorify. Glorification. I'm going to be glorified. What does He mean exactly? Well, I think he means something in the present as well as something in the future. He might mean one or the other, or he might mean both. And so I'm going to give them both to you. I think, first of all, Jesus is speaking of his own future glory with the Father. Now, do you remember, uh, before this Last Supper event, uh, Jesus is up north with his disciples, and he predicts his death. And it was like the disciples went, Nah, 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 nah. They didn't want to hear it. They, they, they plugged their ears. They didn't get the concept. You, you can't die. In fact, Peter even rebukes Jesus for the thought. They didn't get it. But Jesus has a whole different way of viewing his death than they do. To them, it's horrible. It's the end. But Jesus looks beyond the cross, they're just looking at the cross. Jesus is looking as to what that is going to mean. And first of all, it means His own future glory with the Father. I want you to look ahead. We're going to cheat a little bit. Go to John 17. We'll get to it eventually in this series, but peek ahead. This is a private prayer between Jesus and His Father. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come... Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. As you have given Him authority over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. And this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do And now, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself, notice, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Five times glorify or glory is mentioned in those five verses. Soon His suffering would be over, right? He's looking ahead to the future. Restore the glory that we had together. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 2, says... Jesus was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy He knew would be His afterward. Now He is seated in the place of highest honor beside God's throne in heaven. Now you can understand really what it meant when Jesus on the cross said, It is finished, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. For the 12 hours before that moment, He had been in the hands of wicked men who beat Him, mocked Him, spat on Him, and now killed Him. And and soon, in just, just a little bit, in three days, He'll rise from the dead. In 40 days, He'll be ascended into heaven. Soon, all of that will be over. He'll be in the hands of His Father. Soon, He'll be home again. That's the glory He's speaking of. Part of that also includes our own future glory with Him. Listen, through one act of obedience, the cross, people for generations could be brought into glory. Again, the writer of Hebrews, this time in chapter 2, says, It is only right that God, who made everything and for whom everything was made, should bring His many children into glory. Now, that has to be part of the joy that was set before Jesus. Part of the joy that made him able to endure the cross is looking across the chasm of time and seeing Americans and Chinese and Latin Americans and Middle Easterners who would call upon the name of Jesus able to have glory with him forever and ever through his act of obedience on the cross. I think he tasted that joy, don't you? On the cross when he said to the thief next to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He was able to grant that because of the sacrifice on the cross. Here's the application for us Being disciples, being followers of Jesus Christ, ought to change the way we view life, our perspective, our eyesight. Our eyesight now should be transfixed on the eternal horizon. Not looking at the immediate, but the ultimate. What's beyond this? We look to where the road leads, not just how the road looks right now. That's discipleship. We, we see life differently. Like that New York firefighter that I keep telling you about, who was discouraged with the bodies he was pulling out of ground zero, and then suddenly he looks at that cross. And he says, I have hope. There's something beyond this life. Or Johnny Erickson Tata, you know about her, the quadriplegic, who looks beyond her quadriplegia, beyond her wheelchair, into glory. And she's written so often about it. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will give us later on. So I think he's... He's speaking about the future in one hand. Then in another sense, He's speaking about His present obedience to His Father. My act of obedience, the cross itself, is glory. Go back to chapter 12. John chapter 12. Verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, now notice, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now he'll he'll unravel that for us in the next verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. His death on the cross coming up is a present act of obedience that was glorifying to God. For... Thousands of years to come in all generations, all languages, people would glorify God for that plan of the cross because it meant their salvation. This would also show that you don't have to be paid off immediately to obey God. Once again, this shows you don't have to have the payoff immediately to obey God. That a person can surrender to God Even in the midst of sorrowful circumstances, solely, solely to glorify God. If this means God's going to be glorified in my suffering, I'm going to do it because I'm a disciple. I don't have to have the immediate payoff. If I'm going to bring God glory now, then I'll do it. That's what this shows. Remember, Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, Lord, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's bringing glory to the Father by an act of obedience while he's suffering. How about Job? Remember that Satan accused Job before God basically of of having a mercenary relationship with God. Well, you know, God, that Job only serves you because you pay him so well. You put a hedge about him. You protect him. You bless him. He's got bucks galore. Remove your hand and he will curse you to your face. He is only serving you and worshiping you because you pay him so well. God says that's not true and I'll prove it to you. So that when Job was stricken, what did he do? He bowed down and he worshipped in the midst of his suffering and he said, Naked I came into this world. Naked I'm going to leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like the glory at the cross, it shows that you can in this present state be obedient to God if only to bring Him glory through it. It's possible to do that. Being a disciple gives us a different goal in life. When you're a disciple, you start thinking like that. You start thinking, how can my life right now be used to bring glory to God? That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. This uh, last week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I was in North Carolina at the Billy Graham Training Center called The Cove. I'm there every year for a, a series that I teach. As I was there and we were speaking about suffering and worship, Uh, on the final day, it was a day where people give their testimonies, what God showed them during the week through the worship or through the teaching and just what, what salient truths they're walking home with. One lady stood up. It was after a message we gave on the book of Job. And she said, A few years ago, there was a plane crash. Payne Stewart, the golfer, was on his private plane and it crashed, and all aboard were killed. My, father, my uh, husband was on that plane. He was Payne Stewart's manager. When September 11th happened, she said, and I saw those planes crashing into the World Center, uh, Trade Center and the Pentagon and that field out in Pennsylvania, it was like that wound was ripped open once again. She said, God spoke to me in this message. And I've got to tell you that as difficult as it has been in my life the last few years without my husband, my worship with God, my relationship with God has never been stronger. And I've been able to stand in front of church groups and give my testimony and encourage people who are suffering that I might use my life to bring glory to God. You see, that's how disciples think. Disciples don't ask questions like, well, how can I be happy all the time? The question isn't how can I be happy. The question for the disciple is, how can God get glory? How can God get glory? Paul in a jail in Rome said that his prayer is that my life will always honor Christ whether I live or die. Philippians 20. Whether I live or die. I want to honor, I want to glorify Him. Remember Jesus described discipleship this way. He said, you know, if you want to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross, you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now in Roman times, because crucifixion was done by the Romans, when Jesus said that, they knew what it meant. Somebody who carries a cross is not going somewhere to get his life redirected. He's going somewhere to get his life ended. And discipleship means my life is over as far as living for myself. My life is now his completely. And I'm going to bring him glory now as well as in the future. Calvin Miller wrote these very convicting words. He said, Many Christians are only Christ-aholics, and not disciples at all. Disciples are cross-bearers. They seek Christ. Christaholics seek happiness. Disciples dare to discipline themselves, and the demands they place on themselves leave them enjoying the happiness of their growth. Christaholics are escapists looking for a shortcut to nirvana. Like drug addicts, they're trying to drop out of their depressing world. There is no automatic joy. Christ is not a happiness capsule. He is the way to the Father. But the way to the Father is not a carnival ride in which we sit and do nothing while we're whisked through various spiritual sensations. Ouch. But we need that, don't we? That is a discipleship. That's a whole new way of viewing life. That's that's pure spiritual perspective. Second, look at verse 33. A disciple has a new relationship. Little children. Aren't those great words? So tender of Jesus to tell his men, little children. I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come, so I say to you. How long would that be? What is a little while Well, we know in retrospect, looking back, that he meant, well, in a couple hours I'm going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be whisked off to trial. Tomorrow I'm going to be killed. In three days I'm going to rise. In 40 days I'm going to be up in heaven and I'm not coming back for a while. The disciples were not ready to hear that. Just like they weren't ready to hear that Jesus was going to the the cross, imagine if they knew. It was going to be... 2,000 years and the church is still waiting for Jesus to come back and set up his kingdom. You see, the disciples thought that the kingdom would be set up immediately. It's going to happen any moment. Okay, we're going through this sorrow bit, but but, but soon you're you're going to pull it off. You're going to set up your kingdom. Listen, by the time of Jesus Christ, the Jewish nation had a clear-cut eschatology. They had a clear-cut view of future events. The Jews, first of all, believed, number one, that just before the coming of the Messiah, there would be turmoil in Israel that would breed an expectancy for the Messiah like no other time in history. That's why when the Romans came and occupied the land and the Jewish nation longed for the Messiah, they thought, this is it. He's coming. Second, they believed that in the middle of that turmoil... An Elijah-like forerunner would come and announce the coming of the Messiah. That's why everybody ran to John the Baptist down at the Jordan River. He's the guy. The third thing they believed would happen is that the Messiah would come and when He came, He would set up the kingdom of God on the earth with Israel being right at the peak, right in the middle, right at the center. So that the disciples of Jesus Christ believed, being Jewish, that they were in between phase 2 and 3. They expected the kingdom to be set up at any moment. That's why they were so utterly disillusioned and broken hearted when the cross happened. That's why the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, you know, kind of shuffling their feet saying, yeah, well, he died a few days ago. And we hoped, past tense, in him. They didn't hope anymore. It was shattered. It was shattered. However... Jesus spoke of a brand new relationship that He would have with His disciples. Again, they didn't pick up on it right then, but He did predict it. In that very room that night, we're going to read about it in the next few weeks, but let me just tell you ahead. Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. It is to your advantage that I am going away. Now, what do you think they thought when He said that? They thought, are you kidding? I'm leaving. You're going to look for me. I'm not going to be around. And it's actually for your own good that I'm leaving. What? What could be better than having you around, Jesus? When we need food, voila. When we need to pay taxes, we get a fish. There's money in the mouth. What could be better than that? And Jesus explains to them, unless I go away, the Counselor, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, the presence of Jesus Christ that was once localized because he was in the flesh will now be able to be anywhere and everywhere because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within every single believer in Jesus Christ. Now that's the relationship of a disciple. The relationship of a disciple is we don't see him. And so the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by Faith, not by sight. Every Christian today would love to have what the disciples had. Oh, I just want to see—I want to see him face to face. That's got to be the ultimate. Now, one day you will. Until then, your relationship isn't face to face; it's by faith, not by sight. Do you remember when you were a brand new believer? Some of you don't have to think back. Some of you are right there tonight. Some of you have to. Kind of go back through the canyons of your brain and your heart a little bit. Oh, yeah, I remember. Do you remember feeling the presence of Christ? It was almost palpable. It's like, wow. I I can like see him and hear him and feel him. This is the most incredible feeling. Then, I don't know exactly what time it happened for you, but there was a change. The honeymoon period was sort of over. And God brought you to a mature level of not feeling anymore, but believing. Oh, but I want that feeling back, Jesus. I know, but I want you to grow up. We walk by faith, not by sight, not by feeling, but by faith. And that's why Peter said, having not seen Him, yet we love Him. That's maturity. That's growth. It's like a lobster. You know, from time to time, a lobster has to lose its shell. It's growing. It's maturing. It loses its shell, it sheds its shell, and then it grows a new one. It forms a new one. If it does not shed the old shell, it becomes eventually a prison and eventually a casket. So it gets rid of the old shell. But there's a vulnerable time the lobster has in between shedding the shell and forming a new one. There are strong currents in the ocean that toss it around. There's hard coral reefs that it could get scratched on. There are schools of predatory fish that would like to have a nice lobster lunch. And no doubt that lobster, if it could articulate, would say, I long for the old shell. It looks pretty good right about now. But you'll never grow unless you get rid of the shell. And so it is with us. To grow, we need to shed from time to time our shell of feeling, of, of seeing certain things, and just trust Him. We need to shed our shell of uh, a structure we've depended on. And we need to grow. Between here and glory, there's lots of things that twist and turn us around and sharp, jagged edges. But our relationship that is new is one of faith. So, don't feel cheated. I didn't see a miracle today. So what? Neither did I. Now, you might, and God can do anything. Oh, but I didn't feel like I used to feel at worship on Saturday night. So what? God is still on the throne, whether you feel it or not. And the new relationship is to declare it by faith. Third and finally is a new commandment. And we close with this a new commandment, a new perspective. Is first, a new relationship, and now a new commandment. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you should also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, Jesus just told his men he's leaving. They're going to look for him, and they're not going to find him. And their heads spinning, no doubt. Now He's telling them what He expects them to live like after He leaves. A new commandment I give. Now, you might be thinking, that's not new. I've read the Bible before. I've read Leviticus 19, where it says, you shall not bear a grudge against your neighbor, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's that's as old as the hills. It's not new. And even Jesus, when He was asked by the Pharisees, Uh, Master, what is the the greatest commandment? He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So what does Jesus mean? A new commandment. It's not new information, but it's a new application. He, He brings the commandment to a new standard. And a new significance. First of all, look at the standard. This is how they love. Love one another as I have loved you. Really? Like that? That's that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Notice it says that. Love one another as I have loved you. Not love one another in your own little way as you see fit. Love the one you're with. Or any of that nonsense. It's a new standard now. You are to love each other like Christ loves us. You see, otherwise, unless we define it like this, love becomes very nebulous. It already is pretty nebulous in our culture. It's very misunderstood. I love my wife. I love chocolate cake. I love my dog. I hope you don't all love them the same, although you're using the same word. It's like the little girl who was sent to bed without dinner because she misbehaved and she was really angry. She was in her room and she wrote a little note, put it on mom and dad's pillowcase. Mom and dad, I hate you. Love, Nicole. <laughs> Which is it? Probably both. She was conflicted at that time. The, new dis- the standard of a disciple's love is to love one another like Jesus Christ loves us. How does he do that? Number one, sacrificially. He sacrificed Himself for us. He gave Himself. Second of all, unconditionally. Unconditionally. On on the cross He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Third of all, He loved never-ending, non-reciprocal kind of a love. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us in that unworthy state. So, how then should a Christian husband love his wife? Sacrificially. Unconditionally. Never-ending, non-reciprocal kind of love. How should a Christian wife love her husband? Unconditionally. Sacrificially. Non-reciprocal if necessary. How should a Christian parent love his or her child? Same way. How should a Christian child respond to authority? Same way. That's what it means to love as Christ loved the church. And you know what? What? Imitation, they say, is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Oh, how it must bless the Lord. When you look at a person and you say, Lord, I don't like that person, but I choose to love that person because I want to please you and I want to be like you. I want to be like you. That's what you told me to do. In 1 John, he writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Then here's why they're to do it. Here's the new significance. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. By the love you have one for another. How else are people going to know we're really disciples of Christ? What gives us away? What's the telltale sign? You can say, well, I have a bumper sticker on my truck. People know. Just remember, when you have that bumper sticker, you better be driving well. Well, they'll know that I'm His disciple because I have a Christian slogan t-shirt. And it's my witness. And I go in crowds, and when I see people, I go like this. And I let them read it. They know I'm His disciple. Oh, they can tell I'm His disciple because i got this big hunk in Bible. You can't miss it. Well, <laughs> oh, they know I'm a Christian because I have a cross on. They can tell we're a Christian church because there's a cross on it. You know what? People make a big deal about having a cross on the church or on the shirt without love in the heart. And if you have a cross on the church or on your neck without love in your heart, you dishonor the cross because you'll know that you're my disciple by the love that you have one for another. Well, they can tell that I'm a Christian because of my dizzying intellect. I know theology and apologetics, and I can stand up, and I can twist a person like a donut theologically. Oh, you know what? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They want to know that you love. That's the mark of being a Christian. Someone once wrote, Speaking the truth is important. Speaking the truth in love is all-important. Truth without love can become a bludgeon to beat the heart out of anyone. Simply put, the more spiritual you are, the more loving you are. The less spiritual you are, the less loving you are. By the way, an act of terrorism, killing innocent people, is the opposite of love. It's the opposite. And if anything should define the difference, it's either love or that kind of absence of love. Oh, but they were so sincere in what they believe. I don't care. They're sincerely wrong. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 13, And even if I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, I am nothing. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. But it rejoices in the truth. Love, then, is the dividing line. You can tell that you're Christ's disciple by love. That's the new commandment. By the way, notice in closing that it's not even love for the world Jesus speaks of. He didn't even tell us to have that. He just says, you know, if you can just master this, if you can just manage having love for each other, that'll be enough for the world to go, oh, they mean business. Isn't that amazing? 1 John 3, we know that we've passed from death into life because we love the brethren. People hear that you are His disciple. Those people will know that you're His disciple when you love. A little boy was in a large city shivering in front of a window. It was wintertime. And he was peering into a shoe store, shivering like this. And a woman with a nice coat came walking by and she said, What are you doing? She says, I'm asking God for a pair of shoes. She said, Let's go in the store. She went in the store, asked the clerk for a basin of water and a towel, went to the back of the store, washed this little boy's feet, ordered six pairs of socks, six pairs of shoes, put the bags in his hand, patted his head, and said, There you go. There's your shoes. And she was walking out and the little boy was tugging her coat, looked up with those little round eyes and said, Excuse me, are you God's wife? (laughs) You see, love gives it away, man. Love shows you're related. Like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. That's discipleship. New perspective. New relationship by faith. A new commandment to love one another. That's discipleship. There was a teacher who uh, was approached, a professor was approached by um, someone who said, you know, I, I know one of, uh, one of your students. He's, he's in your class and told him his name. And he said, well, he's really not my student, though he attends my lectures. Don't you think there's a difference between attending one's lectures and being one's student? Lord, I've attended all your lectures. But are you my disciple? Lord, that's a searching question. We're just so grateful that your Word answers it so plainly. Disciples view things differently. They look past the pain to the glory. In fact, they see their present suffering, if need be, if it could bring you glory as something honorable. We have a new relationship, Lord. We walk by faith. One day it will be by sight, but, but we're waiting for you to return. Until then, may we mature as we shed our shells of whatever else we're trusting in and grow and mature and become better for it. Lord, I pray that this, this new commandment, though it, it's been a part of Judaism for a long time, even before Christ came, it was a whole new application, whole new standard. Jesus just washed feet. Jesus would give Himself sacrificially. He would love unconditionally. And Lord, we have families. We have husbands. We have wives. We have friends. We have other people who say they're Christians like we are, and our love for them ought to be so exquisite. We know that's a part of the new covenant, Father. It can't be done by just trying to do it on our own. We confess, Lord, our inadequacy, our need for You to transform our lives. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.